6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30 through chapter 31, verse 30. Verse 18, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be built upon its own heap, and the, and the palace shall remain after its own manner. The word heap, by the way, in the Hebrew is tell. Okay, in the Arabic it's also tell. It means mound. And if you go, if you study archaeology, you always have a tell, right? And there's tell Megiddo. It's also called Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo, or Har Armageddon from Revelation 16, 16. But tells are very popular in the Middle East. There's a place called Tel Aviv. You can check, check uh, Ezekiel 3.15 on that one if you like. Tel El Arama in uh, uh, Egypt. Tel Asar from first, uh, six, correction, 2 Kings 19.12. Uh, Tel Mela, Tel Harsha from Ezra 2.59. And uh, on it goes. Uh, you've, you've heard of tells. Tell this and tell that. Well, it's interesting here. The word here that they will be rebuilt upon their heaps is the same word. The word heap means te is tell. And, and in these ancient sites, they become mounds, and when you rebuild the city, and it starts rising in elevation, and it ends up that most of these ancient cities there today are built on mounds, or of the old. In fact, at Megiddo, you can go down 20 levels in archaeology. Jericho is uh, also one of the oldest known wall cities in, the, uh, in evidence. Verse 19, And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. In other words, this is an enormous promise, that they will be ruled by themselves, not that somebody thrust upon them. Bear in mind the context here is Babylonians, vassal king, or under the Romans where they put in uh, Herod, the Idumean dynasty, and so forth. Uh, their nobles shall be of themselves, their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach me, saith the Lord? And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, your God. Now a couple of things here. Uh, this governor is probably the same guy that shows up mysteriously in the last four chapters of the book of Ezekiel, the prince. And as you study that subject, as we did and when we did went through the book of Ezekiel, he's kind of a mystery figure because he's on the one hand a good guy, and yet he's not the Messiah. He's some kind of governor that God appoints and, and puts in place there, and this is a hint of the same situation. Now verse 21 and 22 uh, is one of the most beautiful messianic promises in the Old Testament. And the climax of it is the same climax. The, the old covenant, and the new covenant, everything God does has verse twenty-two as its object. That I shall, and they, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Here it's said in the specifically Jewish context, but he says the same thing in Paul's epistles to you and I, and we'll come to that shortly. 
the fact that it's a native and not a foreigner we've mentioned. Now, this governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and will, I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me, which implies that he's a priest as well as a governor. It's hidden there, but if you study this, there's a priestly position and ministry implied. If you look at Zechariah 6, 12, and 13, you can raise this whole issue that the net of this is this guy is greater than David or Solomon because they were kings only, not priests. A king is warned in a number of places never to usurp the role of priest. Priest and kings are separate. There's a couple of examples. Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12 and 13 usurps the, right, the office of priesthood and all kinds of doom result. Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 makes the same mistake and suffers because of it. So here we have the governor that's hinted at here. What's also carried here is a hint that he will be after the order of Melchizedek. Because there's only two people in the Bible that have the role of king and priest. Melchizedek back in Genesis, and of course, Jesus Christ. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, and the, the book, uh, uh, well, particularly the writer in the book of Hebrews, makes a big point that, that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And there's a whole thing there you may remember when we studied the book of Hebrews. If you defess new material, I suggest you get the tapes and, and take that on. It's a very valuable study. There is another group of people that are kings and priests. They're uniquely kings and priests, and that's you and I. And uh, the epistles promise that, and that becomes very important to us as we try to understand who the 24 elders represent in the book of Revelation. And again, that's something on your own you can dig into if that uh, is something that uh, you find out. Uh, you know, attractive. And I and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Verse 23, Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with a fury, a continuing whirlwind, and it shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. And the fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days ye shall consider it, or regard it, or reckon it, count it, if you will. Okay, that's chapter 30. We'll keep moving because he doesn't stop. In verse 31, at the same time, saith the Lord, verse 1, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people who were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Incidentally, back here in verse 1, that's another point I should make. The families of Israel, or the clans of Israel, the language there in the Hebrew implies the north, this is Israel used in the connotative sense, the northern and southern kingdom, all the tribes. It, it's a phrase that is, is suggestive of the 12 tribes, okay, not just the northern kingdom. Recognize that use of the word there. Okay, and with loving kindness have I drawn thee, verse 3, verse 4, Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy timbrels, and thou shalt go forth in the dances of those who make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Read that West Bank. You know, it's amazing how the translators are just not contemporary. Haven't they read the New York Times? Uh, they don't say Judea and Samaria. They say the West Bank. Anytime you want to send an Israeli, refer to it as the West Bank. That is a term invented by and promoted by the PLO and, and our Northeastern liberal establishment. And if you want, I, I, it makes me nervous saying something that w would offend the owner of the land. 
because the owner of the land is, is someone who is not confused about its name or its heritage or, more important, its destiny, and that's the Lord himself. Anyway, small point, Samaria. When you see Samaria or Judea and Samaria, that's the proper term for what the paper likes to call the West Bank, which is an emotionally charged label that comes of, of, of a PLO origin. Anyway, thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. And there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. What's not obvious in verse 6, just to give you another insight here, watchmen imply the temple being back in service. The watchmen were what was a job. They had a plurality of guys watching for the new moon. Because the new moon started the month, and that is usually the trigger point for temple services. In fact, the most dramatic thing is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. The beginning of the year was when they saw the new moon. And they had watchtowers, and they would watch for the new moon and report it. And that was just part of the... So when you see watchmen here, they're not watchmen necessarily like guards with the military. They're watchmen in the, in the, in the sense that they're officers of the, of the, of the priests. The watchmen upon me from shall cry, and Arise, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God, meaning unto the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish ye, praise ye, and say to the Lord, Save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, not just Babylon. The scope here of Jeremiah's prophecy is vastly beyond their concern with Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and Babylon and all of that. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame and the woman with child and her, and, and her who traveleth with child together. A great company shall return here. Whereas here, there in Israel, in Jerusalem. And, shall, and by the way, it's kind of interesting to see uh, the Gorbachev's boast, the emigration from the Soviet Union to Israel, the North Country, if I may, is increased 10 to 1 this year by the liberal or liberal policies under the current regime. Kind of interesting. Then shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Boy, there's a lot here. Um, the, refre the water is intended to speak of refreshment in the spiritual sense, not just the literal sense. In Isaiah 41, 43, 49, lots of passages deal with that. Uh, his concern for them, of course, is, has to do with his elective purpose, and we could big old study of his elective purpose in all of this, but that would probably be a distraction. Ephraim is a firstborn. That may sound like a strange thing, but you need to recognize that Ephraim is derivative from Joseph, and Joseph had the right of the birthright, of the firstborn. Why? Because it was forfeited by Reuben in, 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 because of Reuben's sin. If you remember our study in the book of Genesis, you'll find some of this repeated in First Chronicles 5. But um, because Reuben forfeited, Joseph inherited, and then Joseph derives into Ephraim and Manasseh, if you recall. So Ephraim is, is, in fact, a phrase appropriate, firstborn in a literal sense, but here the term is used connotatively of the nation. Ephraim can, often, can be and often is a synonym for the nation, particularly the northern kingdom. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the coasts far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Israel was scattered after the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus Vespasian and the four Roman legions in 70 AD. The diaspora, as it's called, the legend of the wandering Jew, you'll see in literature, 
For 1,900 years, they have been dispersed. On May 14th of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, citing an authority from the Old Testament, named the new Jewish homeland Israel after his authority from the Bible. And from May 14th, 1948 on, the return has been undertaken. By whom? By none other than the God of Israel, who he who scattered Israel will gather and keep him as a separate death his flock. Now, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. Stronger than who? Stronger than Jacob. I'll let you figure out who that is. Verse 12 is very familiar to you. Uh, we used to sing that a lot, haven't lately, but we used to sing that a lot. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together in the goodness of the Lord, and for grain and for wine and for oil and for the young and for the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be like a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Very literal prophecy. Nothing spiritualized here. Nothing sort of allegorical. Very literal. You can't read that and not see it very, very literally. Verse 13. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and both young men and old together, and I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow, and I will fill to the full the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Okay. Doesn't require a lot of comment. The whole, the whole tenor of the passage is pretty obvious. Then we stumble into this strange verse 15. Then saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lament, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Rachel weeping for her children because they're gone. They've been killed. Complicated verse. It has several different meanings, all of them valid. Now, if you want to know why in my Bible studies I've become a mystic, it's because I am convinced that many of these verses have more than one valid application. First of all, let's talk a little about Rachel. Rachel, as you know, as opposed to Leah, was the real, the first love of, uh, of Jacob. Loved her more than life itself. She was the ancestress, if I could put it that way, of the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh to Joseph. Okay? As well as Benjamin from the south. Now, by the way, something about Benjamin, you all, if you read Genesis, you know that Benjamin means the son of my right hand. But you missed the point of that because all our maps are wrong. You didn't know that, did you? See, all our maps have north at the top, right? That's Western civilization tradition. If you have a map, north is supposed to be at the top. Not in the Middle East. They have a different orientation. They put east at the top. Because that's where the sun rises. The name for east has to do in several different ancient languages. Sunrise, right? The kings of the sun rising are kings of the east. The word actually is sunrise. It's just the word. And the west is the sun setting. So the maps have east at the top, the ancient, ancient maps. North is on the left. South is on the right. Okay? And evil comes from the north. Babylon attacks from the north because of the crescent in those days. And, of course, the uttermost parts of the north are Magog and Gog and his bands. Benjamin, the Benyamini, were from the right, from the Negev, from the south. The son of my right hand, he's a southerner. The Mason-Dixon line is over that way, as far as they're concerned. Okay. 
So anyway, that's a small point, but uh, some of these things are, 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 are idiomatic in the background. And so Benjamin, the Benjamani is, a, is from the South. And uh, so anyway, side of my right hand, Benjamin. So uh, that's our friend Rachel. Now, Rama has several meanings. It's five miles north of Jerusalem, mentioned in Joshua 18, verse 25. But it's also the, it happens to be the birthplace of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and also 25. You'll find reference to Rama as the birthplace of Samuel. But now, why is it mentioned here? It also was the staging area where the exiles were deported to Babylon from. So when Rachel is weeping for her children, it's because one conception that's valid is that it's at Rama that they were gathered for deportation to, to um, Babylon. The modern analogy, it was the cattle trains heading for Auschwitz. That's perhaps a clumsy rhetorical parallel, but the point is Rama was the departure point in the, in the uh, deportation to Babylon. So when we see here Jeremiah saying, you know, uh, this said the Lord voice, uh, a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Okay, that fits. We can talk about the Babylon captivity. Uh, but going even further than that, okay, in fact, let's just read the next two verses, and then I'll show you another place. Thus saith the Lord, verse 16, Restrain thy voice from weeping in thine ears, thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. Now that reinforces the interpretation of verse 15 as referring to the lament because that was the springboard to their deportation to Babylon, the slaves, right? Great. So just about the time you think you understand that, you then stumble into Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew confuses it even further, because Matthew chapter 2, Matthew ascribes this in a little different way. Matthew chapter 2, he's talking in verse 16, where Herod, after the visit of the wise men, and they split and went another way, Herod's teed off. When he saw that he was mocked the wise men, uh, of the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. Verse 16, sent forth, slew all the children that were Bethlehem and, and its borders from two years old and under, according to the time when he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation, weeping in a great morning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. You gotta be kidding! I got—I just got through thinking that this was tied to the Babylonian captivity. It was a valid application of that prophecy. However, none other than Matthew, by guidance of the Holy Spirit, also links that prophecy to being fulfilled by Herod. Right? Where is Rachel's tomb? Bethlehem. Interesting. And there's other examples that that um, that our friend. Uh, um, Matthew does another little trick on us. Just prior to this, you know, the, the, the Joseph and Mary, they take the child to Egypt, right? And verse 15, the same chapter, verse 2 says, And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of, of the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When you go to Hosea 11.1, 1, where that, that verse occurs, it has a whole different application. 
He refers to the nation as a whole other thing. If you read that and digest it, there's no way you can rationally defend the fact that it's messianic, except you got the best way in the world. Matthew tells you it is. Holy Spirit's helping you here. Why is the Holy Spirit doing that in Matthew chapter 2? You don't learn a lot about, about Egypt and the child by looking tying it to 11.1. You don't learn a lot about Herod's slaughtering of the innocents by this tying to Jeremiah the, and Rachel and Rama and all that. Why is the Holy Spirit doing that through Matthew? To get you to understand that the Scripture is mystical, it's specific, it's literal, and it has several levels. And that's why when we find an encryption in Jeremiah 25 and 51 and Isaiah 7, I think it's interesting because the Holy Spirit's put signposts there. This is a supernatural book. 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years that are designed word by word, letter by letter, space by space, supernaturally, for your learning and mine. Very interesting. And I think these hints by the Holy Spirit are to give us an awe I was going to say respect, but I don't think it's a strong enough term. An awe for the design that lies behind these words. We got down to, um, back to Jeremiah 31. We haven't even got to the juicy part yet. If I seem a little in a hurry and skipping some things, it's because I want to get to the main event. And we're not there yet, so we'll keep slugging away here. I think we got down here to verse 18. The Lord continues, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn me back, and I shall be restored, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after I was turned away, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did not hear, bear the approach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear, is, is Ephraim my dear son? You get the Jewishness in here? I'm always amused by that. You see it several places in the Scripture, but you can almost hear. You almost have to do it. I can't do it well. To do it in a Jewish dialect, you know. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart is troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. Now we have a verse that's got everybody, all kinds of scholars, going in more different directions because the obvious ways may not be correct. Verse 22, and you can almost mark this with a question mark because good, good, intense scholars have trouble with this verse. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now, this has got nothing to do with woman's lib, okay? Now, there are basically two views, and they each have problems, really serious problems, when you get in behind the language. The early, earlier ancient view was that this was sort of a strange allusion to the virgin birth. And uh, when you get into the language, you got some problems with that not the least of which the word woman here is the general word for female. There is no definite article. It's a woman, and it's a woman. It's a strange word. It's not necessarily a virgin. It's just a woman in contrast to a man. It's a strange word they use. Okay. The word sabab, which is the surround, or, you know, or, or uh, what's the term? How is it translated here? Um, uh, compass is a word uh, that is just the opposite kind of a word you use if you're talking about conception. 
though the people who, you know, the classical view is that it is, in fact, somehow allusion to the virgin birth. Some Hebrew scholars say that's really stretching things because they, they dissect all the little nits and nats and say, that's tough. There's a more modern view, still uh, of sound scholarship, but a modern view that this actually refers to the woman is Israel and she's going to woo the Lord. And that's sort of backwards. The woman doesn't do the wooing, the man does. And what's implied in the Hebrew is that it's a new thing, it's a reverse, where she will actually woo the Lord. All through the Old Testament, the Lord is wooing Israel. And what's going to happen here is the reversal of that. And there's a modern sense of scholarship that argues that's really the intent of the Hebrew there. However, there are at least four facts that cause you to go back to the traditional view. There is a new thing here, okay, on the earth. The word create implies divine intervention and causing it to happen. The woman is, the word there implies an individual, not a collective noun. And uh, the man here is the same word as in Isaiah 9, 6, which is a word used of God. So this is a, the real inference here is an exegetical problem in the Hebrew that us, uh, that we with our skills, I don't think are smart enough to unravel. They are two views. They're both valid. They're both okay. I don't want to split hairs. I do want you not to glibly assume one or the other here. There are two views. There are others that really don't make sense. Those two are the basic views, and it's a strange passage. Oh, I have a third view. <laughs> now, I have, I have absolutely no scholarship to support my view. If it isn't Israel, for whatever reasons, if it is the virgin birth, there is a woman in the New Testament, not visible in the Old, that might be alluded to here, the church. And I don't know if that's any good, but I am fascinated that no scholar of all the commentaries looked even suggested that as a possibility, which probably means it's either really wrong or right on target. I have no idea. So with that, I will have you share my abysmal state of ignorance, and we'll move on. Okay. Okay, we got down to verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.